0: Please take that as our gift to you today, but open up if you have that Pew Bible to Obadiah, which is on page 644, and you probably have memorized that page number by now as we've been in this series since Obadiah is only one page long, so 644. As you're getting there, let me once again remind you of something I said at the start of this series, and that Obadiah is distinctive in that it's the only book in the Bible directly addressed to a particular nation other than Israel. The word of the Lord that comes through the prophet Obadiah is addressed to the people of Edom, and the name Edom comes from a Hebrew root word that means red, and as we've talked about, as we've looked at, the Edomites were located once south of the Dead Sea in a land with numerous rocky cliffs that provided defensive cover and strategic concealment ideal for resisting enemy attack, and ironically, if you've been to that part of the world, that's the place called Petra, that would be the place where the Edomites once were, that that. Much of the sandstone in that part of that territory is red, is in fact red. Now, up till now, if you've been with us, the book of Obadiah has been a harrowing promise of reckoning. Edom's pride, you'll remember, in her lofty and impenetrable geographical location has led her to look down on any obligation or responsibility toward others. Repeatedly, the Edomites have remained aloof to the suffering of their neighbor In fact, in 586 B.C., the context in which this is written, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invade Jerusalem, once again the nation of Edom turns a blind eye. Indifference, their indifference, however, as we've heard, as we've gone through this book, their indifference quickly evolves into gloating over the hard times of Judah. In fact, a whole other scripture, Psalm 137, if you go and read it later, Psalm 137 records this scene that's described in Obadiah, that as the city of Jerusalem is violently sieged, the Edomites were standing by crying out, raise it, raise it to the very foundations. And as we've gone through Obadiah, we've also heard that it didn't take long for Edom to move from reinforcing her own self-centeredness to benefiting her own self-interest as the Edomites pillaged and even got drunk on the leftovers of a fallen nation. In the aftermath of all this, as we come to the end of the book today, we're left with what seems like a pretty grim picture. Chaos seemingly reigns as the moral order of the universe appears to have been overthrown by lawless forces. However, as we conclude our reading of this book today, the word of the Lord through Obadiah cautions Edom, and every nation not to jump to such hasty conclusions. I invite you to hear and read with me from Obadiah, starting in verse 17, all the way to the end of the book. It reads But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, and the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sararad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, And the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said earlier, in this series, we've spent most of our time, all of it in fact, considering the situation in Edom. But as we come to the end of this prophetic book, you notice that Obadiah's word turns towards Israel. And so I'd like to briefly look at things from her vantage point to appreciate what's being said here. From the perspective of those who are in Judah, everything seems pretty hopeless, pretty hopeless. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have not just suffered defeat. As those who are not dead are led off into exile, the people of Judah have lost everything, everything they treasure, their homes, their land, their temple, their togetherness as families and as a community. Collectively, they have become an object of scorn, surrounded by those who revel in their discomfort and loss, who make all they can of it, even to the point of looting whatever possessions Judah still has left after the siege. They can perceive no light at the end of their tunnel. Because those who have tried and managed to escape as fugitives, as we heard, have only become victims in an even greater disaster as they are captured and sold into slavery by their neighbors, the Edomites. The people of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, heads off into exile towards the foreign waters of Babylon, dejected and deeply disillusioned. As one city, their city, The holy city of Jerusalem continues to burn while another dances in the flames. They feel abandoned. They feel forgotten. They feel forsaken. And yet, the Lord through Obadiah closes his message with a word of hope. And I'd like to briefly take apart that word of hope for us this morning. If you have those Bibles open and if you closed them, you can open them up again. it, It can happen, 644 Back where we started, verse 17, verse 17, right out of the gate, God starts with a word of deliverance, a promise of deliverance. What has been the scene of distress and death, he proclaims the scene of distress and death with the Babylonian invasion, God proclaims will become the site of Judah's liberation from captivity. The people of Israel will return and they will rebuild the temple. However, as verse 18 makes clear, this hope in the Lord is not just the regathering of a people from exile. Oh, it's much more than this. It is the unification of a people as one nation under God. For deliverance leads to restoration, to healing and holiness. God says that there shall be holiness. Holiness. And in these verses 18 and 19, Obadiah refers, you see, to Jacob and Joseph in these parallel lines as a way of indicating the reuniting of a kingdom that was once divided. Jacob represents Judah, the southern kingdom, and Joseph represents Israel, the northern kingdom. And if you don't remember your biblical history, there was prior to all this chaos, a nation of Israel that got divided, separated, went into civil war because they couldn't hold it together because they weren't holding on to God. And God says he will bring them back together. There will be deliverance. There will be restoration. But there will also be transformation for Israel. In verses 19 through 21, to close out the book, it's outlined how the boundaries of Israel, of Judah, will be redrawn, extending into occupied and enemy territory. But this is more than geographical expansion. God's people, don't miss this verse. God's people will be transformed from refugees into deliverers. They will become emissaries of the deliverance they themselves have received. Ambassadors of a new order. Of a kingdom built not by men, but by God. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. The last word in this book. The Lord will reign over all nations and peoples. The last word of the Lord for Israel is deliverance and transformation. It is salvation and sanctification. It is vindication and victory. It is hope for the hopeless. And it is hope that comes not just from the mouth of Obadiah, but if you're familiar with the scriptures, if you've been in them lately, This is the rapturous, the singular chorus of all the prophets. And it is a hope not just for the people of Israel, but for all nations, for all people. Beloved, as we draw near the end of this series, that's what I want us to understand this morning. That's what I want us to marinate in in these scriptures this morning. I want us to understand, I want us to let it in that this word of hope is for us today too. Obadiah and the other prophets could point to the hope of the Lord coming on the horizon, but Obadiah and the rest could not perceive what lay beyond the horizon, how God would fulfill his covenant promise to all creation. But we have the next page in the story. We have the New Testament because it's revealed to us. It exists because it explains and unveils how these prophetic hopes are not ultimately realized in the return to the land or in the rebuilding of the temple. But in fact, the fulfillment of what the Lord promises comes through the incarnation of God with us, of God for us, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in in these last few verses of Obadiah the reference to Mount Zion. And this comes up a lot in the prophets, Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is sort of a a packed phrase that, that... doesn't just speak of a geographical location, it's sort of all encompassing to refer to the land, the temple in Jerusalem and all it stood for. It's this sort of way of expressing the presence of the Lord with his people. And that is what we have in Christ. Not that we go to Mount Zion, but Mount Zion comes to us. Jesus repeatedly speaks as if his coming to earth and dwelling among us made the temple redundant. And later gospel writers affirm as they emphasize how Jesus' is more than sufficient sacrifice on the cross, not just for the deliverance of Israel, but for the whole world further, made further animal sacrifices, the whole system, unnecessary. In his resurrection and the giving of his spirit, the Lord's presence is found no longer in a house made by human hands or in a specific land, the borders of any land. But in his resurrection and the giving of his spirit, we are told the Lord's presence is found in the heart hearts of those who believe in and follow him. This is our hope. This is the full realization of the hope that Obadiah points to. This is the gospel. My friends, the question is, do we have this hope today? Are we living out of this hope? I ask this, and part of the reason why I believe God led me to Obadiah, it's not a book that's that's normally preached on is as I was drawn to it and as I read it and as I reflected on it and I prayed through it, it's a book for our times. It's a a book that reflects very much the world we live in in many ways. I look around at this world of ours as it appears to grow ever darker. I look around at this world as it appears to grow ever darker and I look at the body of Christ in this world. I look at professed believers like you and me and I struggle to see the light. I struggle to see the light, the hope, and the darkness. I watch. I watch as the world and the people near me experience loss, grief, suffering. I watch as the people around me experience grief, loss, and suffering, and I see at the same time a lot of self-righteous pride and self-centered indifference. And I see a lot of this self-righteous pride and self-centered indifference among those who claim to represent Jesus, including me. I hear people gloat over their success, even as they pounce on the failures of others. I find myself justifying what is mine, even as I profess the grace I experience is not earned. In my discontent, in my fear, I struggle to grab and take what I can, when I can. All the while, I refuse to accept that my own sense of security, apart from the Lord, comes at the expense of others. I, I can be pretty judgmental. I can be pretty judgmental as I look around and see a lot of hopeless people. But this is what Obadiah reflects back to me as I look around and I see a lot of hopeless people. The thing is, Obadiah, God says to me through these words is do I ever stop and wonder if the hopelessness I see is because I am the one living without hope in Christ. It's because I am the one. You see, people who see no hope, people who see no hope can feel frustrated Discouraged, heartsick, anxious, stressed, angry. Is that my regular temperament? Is that my regular temperament? People who have hope in Christ, as we've talked about last week, people who have hope in Christ have the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this the kind of fruit being harvested through me? Or am I just adding to the hatred, the fear, the aggression, the impatience, the violence, the listlessness, the lifelessness? Do I face each day like someone who has been resurrected from the dead as more than a conqueror in Christ? Or do I live my life as if I'm buried under an avalanche of dread and despair? Do I live my life as a victim of circumstance? Beloved, don't mishear me this morning. This is not a guilt trip. My purpose is not to shame you or myself. This, I believe from God at the close of this book, is an encouragement, a rallying cry for us to embrace the hope we have in Christ. You may be here today And you may be suffering from the pain of losing all you treasure. We may have to, you may have had at some point, you may even now be enduring the silence and indifference of others, even as you grieve. We may experience that shock to the gut of being hit when we're already down, of being mocked, of taken advantage of, of betrayed by those closest to us. But beloved, no matter how bewildering, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how agonizing our circumstances, The word of the Lord is that our hope is not in vain. When our hope is in the Lord, when our hope is in Christ, deliverance will come. Salvation is ours. God will have the last word. But the thing is we have to live out of that future deliverance now. We must draw our courage and our optimism from the cross today. We need to lean and trust in that final word when all other words fail. Because hope is not a philosophy. Hope is not even a belief system. Hope is a way of life. For you today, for those of us who are suffering because of others, who are suffering for no reason of your own, who are suffering for no reason that can be understood or explained, this is a word you need to hear. This is a word you probably long to hear. You just have to let it penetrate in the midst of your anger, your depression. But I also recognize this morning, perhaps because I see it in myself, but I also recognize this morning that this word of God through Obadiah also speaks to a particular variety of suffering a particular variety of suffering that doesn't fall into the categories I just mentioned, a particular variety of suffering that can make it difficult for us to receive this word of promise, to believe in the hope of the gospel. And this particular kind of suffering I'm talking about is the fact that sometimes, more often than we care to admit, our struggle, our pain, our loss, is of our own making. That we are our own worst enemy. And with everything else going on in Obadiah, you might have forgotten or we might have missed it. With everything else going on in Obadiah, it's easy to forget or lose sight of the fact that this, what I just described, is at the root of Judah's hopelessness too. The fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonian conquest and captivity, let's understand something. These are not things that just happened to Judah. They were the results of of years of blatantly ignoring and willfully rejecting both the Lord's instructions for living and his call to repentance. God sent prophet after prophet to caution and refocus them. They witnessed how their brothers and sisters in the northern half of the kingdom ran into a dead end and came apart at the hands of the Assyrians. In yet another chance for a different outcome, the Lord allowed Judah to dodge that bullet. But now the consequences of their actions play themselves out. What they had sowed is finally reaped. And on the surface of things, don't miss this, as Jerusalem went up in smoke, as the temple lay in ruins, as the people were carted off into bondage, it appeared as though the sins of Judah had done them in once and for all. And yet in spite of the many downfalls the nation of Israel had experienced, in spite of their repeated and and unfaithful behavior towards their loving God, God remains faithful. And through Obadiah, he assures them he will deliver. He will rescue. He will save them. This is a word of hope. This is a word of hope, not just to Judah, but to anyone out there who has been rebellious, broken, lost for so long, and after so many warnings and so many self-inflicted tragedies, you have quietly excommunicated yourself from the Lord. This is a word of hope for you. God's forgiveness is really yours in Christ. The Lord desires to rescue you. To all the prodigals who haven't yet come to their senses or believe the only sensible thing for them to do is to realize that you're beyond saving, your Father, our Father is waiting for you to come home. He's already running towards you, in fact. All you have to do is accept His embrace, His robe, His sandals, His ring, and join the party. But you say, "I, I, I cannot feel His presence. I can't remember the last time I felt his presence. You insist that things just keep happening to you that make it clear that you have fallen out of favor with God. My friends, when these troubling thoughts nag you, maybe even overwhelm you, ask yourself, ask yourself if you would ever abandon those you love the most. What lengths would you go to in order to help those whom you love. And in the answer to that question, is the, in, the, in that impulse, is the love that is the reflection of the image of the character of God in whom we are created. My friends, believe and know that our Father is exponentially more determined to restore us to himself. He doesn't just love us when we are friends. He loves us even still when we are enemies. The Lord came all the way to the cross to make this hope tangible, visible to you. God is always ready, underline that, highlighted, always ready to relieve the burden of your sin, to fight the battle of our guilt, to put to death the shame of our failures. All we have to do is turn to him, to receive him, to depend upon him. This is the first and only step of our deliverance As the Lord brings salvation into our lives, we need to abide in God's deliverance. And abiding in the Lord's deliverance is realizing our dependence upon Christ. My friends, you can't break glass or sound the alarm and then lead the one who is blocking for you. You can't break glass or sound the alarm and then presume to lead the very person who's rescuing you. And for many of us, this is what we've diluted the gospel into. I have been forgiven, I have been saved. Thank you, Lord, I'll take it from here. No! No, you end up right back where you started. No less forgiven, but stuck. Because if you need God to save you, we need God to save us every day, every moment. We can't let go of his hand. We need him to hold us up. We can't walk, let alone crawl, unless he is holding on to us. Rescue is about acknowledging our reliance that we can't make it on our own. We need to follow Jesus. Because as we've learned through Obadiah, the hope that God offers us is not just salvation. The hope that God offers us is salvation and also his promise to change our lives. Our hope is in the Lord's deliverance but also in the Lord's transformation of us. Our hope is in God's vindication and his sanctification of us. There will be salvation and there will be sanctification. And the great theologians of old have always lived in this tension that there is justification, the forgiveness that comes being made right with God and then there is sanctification, living into, out of that righteousness. God through Obadiah declares clearly in verse 17, and there shall be hope holiness. Our hope is in the fact that while the Lord accepts us as we are, the Lord promises not to leave us where we are. Forgiveness is God's starting point in Christ. But the end game, beloved, the end game is wholeness, holiness, wholeness. The Lord's purpose for each of us is to become whom and what we were always created to be a righteous, just, and loving people, a perfect reflection of our Creator and our Savior Christ. So I ask you again, are you being changed for the better? Are you healing? Are you becoming a whole person, a new creation thanks to Jesus? Or once again, are we losing hope rather than living out of it? Because it can be easy, man. It can be easy. It's tempting to proclaim we are saved and yet to act like we are hopeless. And and do we understand that that's the big disconnect that the world sees when it looks at the church? Not all of the church, but much of what it sees. You proclaim that you are saved, but you don't look any different. You don't act any different than anybody else. You're just as hopeless as the rest of us. My friends... Even though we profess God's forgiveness to others, to ourselves, we can still find ourselves stuck in our sins. Nothing's changed. I'm not the only person who's experiencing this, right? We struggle. We struggle, we we make resolutions, we recommit ourselves to Christ, and yet we still sin. We try harder, we read books, we weep at the altar but we still feel as though our sin makes a hypocrite of our faith. You need to hear this. We need to keep it in front of us. My friends, by God's grace, you and I, we are a work in progress. Each one of us, every child of God, is the Lord's masterpiece being unveiled as the divine potter continues to soften, to mold, to shape, to smooth the clay that is us. With Jesus, forgiveness comes immediately. But our sins do not let go so easily. Old habits die hard, right? Fresh thinking, new patterns of behavior do not develop overnight. Learning to walk by faith without putting our foot in our mouths takes time. Make no mistake, understand there is work to be done in us. But the thing is, we must remember again and again, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in the work, the self-help we do. Our hope is in Jesus, the work Christ is doing, the help through the word and the spirit Christ offers us daily. Grace is what saves us, and grace is what changes us. It is a divine operation, not a human one. Our part is to follow, to pay attention to listen, to yield, to learn as we are being taught, as we are being trained, as we are being matured. We don't have to do all the work. But we do have to make the time. We do have to give of ourselves. We do have to choose to follow. And that choice, that time has to be more than an hour on a Sunday or 15 minutes in the morning for a quiet time or in the evening before you go to bed. It means we have to make the choice to take every thought captive to Christ. It means we have to make the choice to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, we cannot live as spiritual schizophrenics. And many of us, that's exactly what we are. We live these compartmentalized lives. This part of our life's over here and then these are these other parts of our lives. And a compartmentalized life, you need to hear this, is not a life completely surrendered to Christ. A compartmentalized life is where our hope is not in Jesus. Our hope is ultimately in ourselves. If our heart is divided, if we have a church persona and a non-church persona, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're a different person when you're here than when you're out there. If we engage our relationship with God like a spiritual buffet, oh, I'll have some of this, but I don't care for that. Or, oh, I like this, but I don't like that. If we engage our relationship with God like a spiritual buffet, then our lives, of course, are going to remain stagnant and fragmented. The thing is, and this is, this is what Jesus tells us, but do we hear him? Do we trust him? This life matters. This life counts. But this life is preparation and training in real time for our next life in eternity. Hear what I said our choices matter. The lives we live now, we're being prepared and trained in real time with real consequences. But the thing is, even though we hear this, we profess it, we still perceive this life as more important than the next one. But the truth that the gospel proclaims is the best is yet to come. We ain't seen nothing yet. This life matters. This life counts. Hear me. Health and wealth and all the rest are good gifts from God, but beloved, they are not his greatest gifts. And ask yourself, if you think the greatest gifts that God have to, has to offer you, if they're your only prayer requests, are for your health, your wealth, and your prosperity now, then you don't understand. You don't have the hope that God is offering you. Our hope in the Lord is in his promise, there shall be holiness. And we know that when God speaks, he creates. We are being made whole. It will come to pass, not by our effort, but through our daily submission to his effort. The transforming work the Lord purposes to accomplish in us is happening. And it's not just for ourselves. That's the final thing I want us to hear from Obadiah. It's so critical, but easy to get miss. God saves us. God changes us, not just for ourselves. This transforming work is for something greater than ourselves. Obadiah, at the end of this book, do you remember it? He describes this scene of God's people being transformed. I highlighted it for you. Being transformed from fugitives into deliverers, from those who were wandering and were lost, to those who by the work of the Lord in and through them become those who search and rescue for others. Paul will later refer to this as our ambassadorship for Christ. This is why we are saved. This is why we are transformed, so that God can continue to save, continue to transform through us. Exclusive prophets like Obadiah no longer share this living hope in Christ because the gospel, we are told, is shared through the prophetic witness of the body of Christ, you and me. We are changed by Jesus so that Jesus can transform the world through us. And if that rocks your world, blows your mind, seems impossible, amen. Amen. I think it's crazy. I think it's insane. But it's not my word, it's God's. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And and for many of us, again, this is a place where our sense of hopelessness reveals itself. Because even though we are Christians, even though we are followers of Jesus, we struggle to find meaning and purpose in our lives. We come to church, we believe we've been forgiven, we have these jobs, we have these relationships, we do stuff, but we sit back and we go, what's it all about? These jobs, these relationships, this stuff, what's it all about? Beloved, if you truly understand the hope we have in Christ, if you're receiving the grace of God that is ours in Jesus, then know this, you and I, we exist, we live, each one of us, all of us, to glorify God. To glorify God. How? How? The glory of the people of God is the salvation of all creation. If that doesn't get you excited, nothing else will. The glory of the people of God is seeing, is being part of God's salvation of the creation itself. Our shared and unique calling is to be agents of rescue, redemption, and reconciliation for the kingdom of God. To be agents of rescue, reconciliation, redemption for the kingdom of God, where, how? Through how we work, through where we work, through where and how we engage our relationships, through the stuff we choose to do. Through everyday things, God does things extraordinary. Miracles aren't the exception, they're the rule. We are being changed by God to fit this job description. We are being equipped to fulfill that calling. So I ask you again, is this the employment you're engaged in? Is this the glory you are seeking? Do you remember here when Obadiah talks about the fire and flame of God's holiness lighting up and changing Jacob and Joseph in verse 18? That there's this this picture I told you is being cast of the restoration and unity among people. A unity that isn't being hasn't yet been achieved when it's proclaimed. This unity of two nations that were once divided. It's kind of hard to believe. But here's the thing. This image transcends the borders of a divided nation or a divided kingdom or one nation. This vision that Obadiah hints at, Paul blows up as he describes this as God's vision of breaking down the wall of hostility between peoples. Our hope in Jesus, in other words, is having the eyes to see, to envision, the extinction of prejudice and hatred. Our hope in Jesus is being changed, not apart from each other, but being changed together. Paul says it this way, Jew and Gentile becoming one in Christ, male and female becoming one in Christ. Is this the kind of hope that's influencing our view of the world? Is this the kind of hope that's influencing our view of our neighbor across the street? Is this the kind of hope that is influencing our view of the person across the aisle with whom we so strongly disagree? Or are we blinded by the hopelessness of a rhetoric that demands vengeance, that spurs us to sit in judgment, that whispers to us, we're not the problem, it's them. One of the most repeated questions I have in our community, and I appreciate these questions, and and it forces me to look within and wrestle myself, and and you may have other things that push your buttons, but it's this question in the midst of so many other things going on in our world, but this, how do I love ISIS? And that is a loaded question. And and, and, uh, my response is I don't know. My response is, I can't imagine how it's possible. My response is, I don't want to. I won't. But then, in the limits of what I can imagine, and the limits of what I would allow, God's word continues to speak. I can't get Jesus out of my head, who says, despite how I want to give them a different classification, that he calls me to love my enemies. He doesn't just call me, he says... I will be at work in you and through you I will teach you, I will make you able to love your enemies. And so my, my initial response is we don't have to love ISIS. We shouldn't love ISIS but we should love the people of ISIS. And I don't know how to do that. I don't have three easy steps for you other than this. To look to Christ. To look to Christ and not to look there But to look to Christ, because when I look to Christ, I see the character of the God that I follow. When I look to Christ, if I really look, if I honestly look, I see the character of myself, who I have been and who I am becoming. And if I look really deeply into Christ, if I keep looking, I see who they, whoever they are, who they are intended to be, who they are meant to become. And maybe that's the starting point of choosing not to hate, but choosing to love. My friends, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is as we choose to be hopeful, to avoid bitterness and vindictiveness towards those who do us evil, individually or corporately, as we become ambassadors of forgiveness and grace, trusting in the judgment and victory of our God, we will become more than conquerors through him who loves us. Through our witness to Christ, evil will be overthrown, sin will be overcome, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. We live in a time when despair and hopelessness are more likely to dominate people's lives than hope. And in times like these, the final word of Obadiah is a word for all who believe they are hopeless. That the world is hopeless in the midst of our failures and our suffering. In the midst of our weakened faith, this God who reveals his character, who lays his intentions bare for us all to see on the cross, assures us no matter what happens, we are not forgotten or forsaken. Despite the perceived ambiguities all around us, through the reality of an empty tomb, this God assures us history is going somewhere. Our lives, the whole of creation, is building towards a grand finale. We may not yet hear the music, but the music is playing and it is building a decisive and redemptive climax, an eternal triumph over the cancer of sin, the chaos of evil, and the violation of death. It is coming. The last chapter in every story is always the Lord's, and because it is always the Lord's, it is always good. Our God vindicates the brokenhearted. Our Lord frees the captives and releases all who are imprisoned by suffering, persecution, or despair. Our God frees and releases all who are imprisoned by suffering, persecution, or despair, even if and when it is of our own making. We may grow weary, but God cannot. We may give up, but God will not. We may fluctuate, but again, God can't. We may vacillate, but again, God won't. We may disappoint ourselves, but God will not disappoint us. We may fail a thousand times, but God will never fail us. Is this your hope? Is this the hope that is at the center of your being, your thoughts, your actions, is this what gets you up in the morning? Is this what helps you to sleep at night? Is this what presses you on? Because this is the only hope we have. The hope of our deliverance and transformation. The hope that from start to finish, the kingdom is the Lord's in Christ. Amen.